This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. This is Psychology at Work on Visa Center. My name is Audrey Raj and with me on the show as always is organizational psychologist and CEO of Osaic, Hetal Doshi. Apakaba? Super good. Thank you so much, Audrey. How are you? I am doing good myself. Uh on the show today, um it is part 2 of our five-part series on succession planning and we are going to be discussing uh, CEO myths and selection biases and of course what we can do about it now uh hito let's start with CEO myths right um why are we talking about CEO myths and how does that relate to succession planning I think one of the major reasons why we're talking about this is because as organizations make a decision about who is going to succeed Uh, there's a typical profile that comes out in their mind about who could succeed. Mm. However, this makes the pool a lot smaller because we do not consider all the other potential uh, candidates or talent that could be out there. So, I think my theme for today is what it takes to look the part and what it takes to deliver results may not be the same thing. So, who you think would be the best candidate versus who could actually deliver the results? may not eventually be the same person and so the hope and the aim of this uh, podcast would be to really open our minds and open up the selection pool for all of the candidates that could be quite valuable for this particular position so actually also uh, before we get into this uh, one of the major reasons why this has become a topic is because the list of celebrity ceo failures are getting higher uh, and bigger so there are a lot of CEOs that have become you know of celebrity status the ones who come out on Twitter the ones who come out on Facebook all the time but they may not actually be succeeding uh they might just be taking up a lot of noise in the uh social media platforms and the research actually confirms these findings that the failure rate of a lot of celebrity executives are at 50% right now and the picture of what makes success or what creates success is not necessarily what Uh, media portrays are to be. So, shall we start with the myths, Audrey? Yes, let's go. Let's get into it. <laughs> okay, so number one, um what about where we which university we graduate from? Does that mean that like the better the university that we graduate from or if we are Ivy Leaguers that will perform better as CEO? So, what do you think, Audrey? I would think being an Ivy Leaguer would give you an advantage for sure but you know I don't think it's necessary because we've seen some um they you know start a business out of their parents garage and they still succeed and become multi-billionaires right Yeah exactly um so yet yet as part of the selection criteria it is typically uh, uh you know a criteria to have a look at where they graduate from and some people might say yeah that's just a criteria but we don't really look at it then don't include it at all if that's not the most important thing however okay let's look at some stats now so 7% of the CEOs that were analyzed in this particular research graduated from an Ivy League college whereas 8% of this pool of candidates of CEOs did not even complete college or actually even took an unusually long time to graduate 
Um, Ivy League graduates are more um, prevalent among the ranks of the Fortune 500 CEOs, but outside of this small set of the largest companies, there's a much broader range of educational backgrounds and pedigrees. So what this means is that within the top Fortune 500, we actually still see a lot more Ivy Leaguers. Mm -hmm. But outside of it, we have a lot more that are not necessarily Ivy Leaguers. So I can't really um, make a clear understanding about whether this is a bias and therefore more of them end up there. And so that means the pool has lesser Ivy Leaguers and so they end up being CEOs of other companies. But in this particular research, 7% of CEOs graduated from Ivy League companies and in that same pool, 8% never graduated uh, from any college or uh, took an unusually long time to uh, graduate. Right, right. Okay. What's the yeah. next myth, Ethel? Um, so there's another myth that CEOs are egotistical superheroes, right? Like mm. um, that they're egotistical or like they are, you know, very materialistic or that they are difficult to approach. Um, but um, so CEOs who saw independence, right? Like the ability to be independent and the ability to score well independently. Uh, CEOs who define themselves as that, as their defining character trait were twice as likely to underperform compared to other CEOs. So CEOs who use uh, words like I at a much higher rate than we uh, were twice as likely to underperform. And for many, many successful CEOs, um, this team orientation has its roots in early organized like sports and in mentoring others, which means that a lot of CEOs who did sports when they were younger or took part in mentoring other people and uh, they define themselves more as we and more as teams actually ended up being more uh, powerful and therefore they continue to stay as CEOs as well. So it is not true that most CEOs are uh, egotistical superheroes. It could be that most uh, underperforming CEOs are mm. egotistical and they think of them as uh, super superheroes. So yeah, um, think about the leaders that you're talking to. Do they say I more? Do they say we more? Uh, do they play sports, uh, team sports in particular? And do they um, actually uh, invest time in mentoring others? They would be the most successful ones out there. And we are definitely seeing a lot more, a lot more great leaders out there, I mean, at least from my personal experience. Okay, what's number three, Hetel? So um, number three would be that CEOs are very extroverted, they're very larger than life, they're very charismatic, very confident. Um, yeah, I think there is this general belief that CEOs would be a lot more extroverted and charismatic. Um, they are so charismatic that they are like masters of the universe and they are like glorified as if they were God, right? Um, they are then taken and shown across all Hollywood films or on Netflix. Like, for example, you're seeing... The who's who in Netflix right now, right? You're not seeing the ones who are quiet. Yeah. They're the ones who get like shown out there, but are they the only ones who are performing? Not necessarily. Uh, in fact, actually, when there was research done, a third of CEOs in studies described themselves as introverted. And in this particular study, introverted, introverts were actually slightly more likely to exceed board's expectations. So mm -hmm. introverted CEOs uh, tend to actually exceed or at least by slightly the board members' expectations. And why do they do that is because they tend to signal, I'm not saying all of them do that, but introverts or typically people who are willing to listen tend to signal uh, that sense of 
learning orientation, that I am here to, my confidence is in learning, my confidence isn't in talking and influencing. And I'm creating that. Um, so when they looked at this data, there was statistically no difference found between introverts and extroverts. And um, yeah, high confidence doubles your advantage of being chosen as a CEO, but doesn't actually provide you an advantage in being a performer. Uh, so yeah, unfortunately, if you're confident and if you're extroverted, you are probably going to be picked more easily. But um, when it comes to performance, the introverts have a slight advantage and confidence has no advantage once you are selected already. Um, yeah, what they look at is not confidence in ability, but confidence in learning. Um, and this is what everybody's looking out for. The sense that you are open and willing to learn is more important than you know everything. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Um, so um, CEOs are, um, they're not egotistical uh, superheroes per se. Uh, they don't have to be larger than life or have exceptional charisma and confidence. What's next? CEOs are destined for greatness from an early age. So that hmm. thing of like, let's spot potential at a young age um, may not be true at all. In fact, 70% of CEOs that were identified in this study never ever set out themselves to be CEOs later on in life. Um, and the only time that they began to begin to think about becoming a CEO was when they were within that level of reach. So it is about exposure towards that particular space in a, in a hierarchy of an organization rather than, oh, yeah, I would love to be a CEO. Um, and typically, after only about 15 to 20 years of experience, did they actually begin to feel that they would want to become a CEO and that they could maybe thrive in that particular role? So, um, yeah, I, I, I think when when organizations hire employees and immediately begin to categorize them as high potential uh, talent can become a very dangerous thing because at that point in time, we may not even have exposed them enough for them to say, yeah, this is what I want. And when somebody wants something, obviously it's going to be much easier for them to be excited about that role and potentially perform in that role as well. So no, uh, parents, if you look at your kids and they're you know, uh, able to organize the kitchen or cook something, please don't be like CEO in the making. That's like just really wrong. That's not CEO in the making. CEO in the making is someone who's been there, done that for about 15 years and they actually begin to see, oh my God, yes, this is something that I feel is very much part of my field right now. Okay, uh, it is time for us to take a quick break. Uh, but when we come back, we get into uh, the remaining six CEO myths as well as selection biases when it comes to selecting your next CEO. All that and more happening on Psychology at Work on Resource Center. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Balanced Frank Medium, BFM 89.9. 
You are listening to Resource Center. This is Audrey Raj. It is episode 13 of our Psychology at Work series and on this uh episode we are talking about CEO myths and selection biases. Now, Hetel, um what are the myths are there? You know how we all write resumes and stuff like that, right? So obviously at every juncture we want to see that Yeah, we've we've succeeded every step and milestone in our life, but that's actually not true. In fact, the reality is that um, 45% of CEOs had at least one major career blow up that ended um, that ended their jobs or was extremely costly to the business. And so that idea that oh yeah, failure is something that we are willing to to look at. Um, actually, needs to be implemented as well because majority of the top CEOs have had. 45%, not majority, 45% have at least had one major career blow up. Um, yet maybe 70, 78% of these, these people who have failed and created a massive uh, uh, missed opportunity for themselves, 78% of losers, if you call them that, uh, people who have lost jobs, actually eventually went on to become some of the best CEOs as well. So it wasn't that... See, you know what sets successful CEOs apart is not the lack of mistakes, but um, sometimes maybe it's because they made those mistakes that that level of anger, that level of motivation, that level of like I need to prove myself, that level of compounded energy propels them to do something even more uh, incredible. And so you know it can be a big bias that uh, happens when it comes to making decisions about CEOs. That some people say, yeah, but they failed before, but Unfortunately, in this data, unfortunately, in this data, CEOs who talk about a blow up are actually, you know, more than 78% more likely to deliver the next strongest performance as a CEO. Right. Because failure yeah. also makes us... Like and, exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right. Um, what's next then? What's our next myth? Yeah. So what about female CEOs, right? So female CEOs succeed differently from men. Um, but they succeed anyway. Well, yeah. Um, I think one of the one of the saddest things again is that um, only about I think as of right now maybe about four to six percent of the largest companies are, are led by female CEOs. Mm. Um, and and in fact, female CEOs and male CEOs CEOs are actually not different. They don't succeed differently. They actually succeed the same way. But mm. it is interpreted in a totally different way. Uh, for example, if a male is aggressive, uh, then a female is, I can't use the word here, but she's mm. not allowed to be aggressive. Uh, the way her aggression is interpreted in a way that uh, results in uh, defamation of sorts of her reputation and it becomes like, oh, she just cannot handle the pressure. So um, the myth is that CEOs, CEOs, female CEOs are different from male CEOs, but it's not. They're essentially the same, but their behaviors are interpreted in a way that is um, unfortunately not so helpful for women as they then become less likable from the interpretation of their behaviors. Right. What's yeah. next? We are on myth number seven. Another, another myth is that CEOs excel in any situation, and that's obviously wrong. I think the idea that CEOs can excel in any context, in any situation, any point in time because they are you know, the hallmarks of excellence is absolutely wrong. Um, so therefore, when when a CEO is thinking or when you are thinking about which CEO will take on your organization, it is important about considering their identity and how what kind of um, situations work with that particular identity. So if they are CEOs that are very good at turnarounds, 
then put them more in situations that are turning around businesses. If they're CEOs or their identities of our relationship building, then you probably want to, you know, make sure that you put them in these kind of situations. But mm. if you want somebody who, yeah, you can't put a wrong identity in a wrong situation. You need to identify the right identity that is required for that particular situation. Yeah. So not all CEOs will be the best fit. It all depends on the context and therefore the identity that they have in being able to succeed in that particular context, if that makes sense. Okay, so we have three more to go. What is our eighth myth? CEOs work harder than us. I think sometimes we have that mm. thing that, oh yes, CEOs work very, very hard, but that's not necessarily the case. The analysis um, showed that uh, there is no prediction between how hard a leader worked and how likely he was to become a CEO. So mm. hard work is not necessarily CEO, you know, uh, criteria of CEOs. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's more important what they do with their time and their time should be all utilized as much as possible about thinking, strategizing and rallying. Um, yeah, uh, you know, it's not about working hard. It's really about minimizing the the work, the negative work ethics, mm. uh, which could be like, you know, uh, treating people poorly or not paying them well. Uh, so ma- making sure that you use your time to remove or negate any terrible work ethics that would be a better use of your time uh, rather than working hard. Yeah. Another another one is that, you know, a CEO requires uh, experience, but the shocking findings that we had in this particular research was that um, CEOs were statistically no less likely to meet or exceed expectations than those with prior CEO experience. So Sometimes maybe your experience could work to your disadvantage as well. So not having experience in this particular study showed that you were not necessarily likelier or less likely to succeed compared to somebody who had experience. I don't think that means that we go around like making sure that we hire inexperienced people for CEOs. But uh, if you find that a candidate is extremely suitable, but they may not have experience, uh, then do not discount the fact that they may not be able to perform at that capacity uh, whatsoever because it's just like an intern right like you've never had the experience but yeah, you still perform at the end of the day some perform some don't perform as well yeah okay and we are on our final myth now yeah i think um the level of iq right so uh is it important for this person to have very high levels of iq and this is this is um uh, yeah, this is something that was uh, rebutted earlier, that it is not necessarily that uh, leaders with higher levels of intelligence, as measured by standardized intelligence scores, does not increase their odds of becoming a CEO and definitely doesn't uh, increase the odds of performing well. Uh, in fact, CEOs who cut to the chase and speak in very clear, simple, non-bombastic language, uh, compared to those with you know complex, cerebral vocabulary, and right now we're working with some clients that yeah, their vocabulary is so bombastic that nobody else can understand what they're talking about except for themselves and the fellow Ivy Leaguers. And there's a lot of time invested in translating what that actually means from a layman's perspective or at least an average man's perspective has actually led uh, to us finding out from that particular organization, the majority of them saying, we simply do not like the CEO because we cannot even understand this person and this person is way too bombastic. We are not there in one tail end of it. We are on the other spectrum. Uh, yeah. So, so it is a case of me versus you rather than a case of we. Um, intelligence is still very important. IQ is still very important, but more importantly is to make sure that you are able to be understood and um, connected with everybody around you. Yeah. 
Right, Hito, we have a few minutes before we have to take another quick break. I know we've been talking about all these CEO myths, but do you have like a case study, a case study or some examples of um, some unlikely CEOs that have actually made it, that have actually um, proved themselves and um, are an excellent example of a, of a success story? Yeah, I really like this particular story because it's just such a down-to-earth story. Uh, literally down to earth story. So this is a story about Don, Don Slager, the CEO of Republic Services, which is a recycling and waste services business. So Don grew up in a blue collar community. He was surrounded by like welders, truck drivers, uh, steel mill workers. And um, he, he went to a high school with aspirations to become a builder, but like um, graduated into like what they call a bum market for construction. So like just basically, you know, uh, one of those that just gets handpicked to do construction. And he he started his career driving a garbage truck and clocked in at 3.45 a.m. and geared the thankless monotony of his job and the, you know, the horrible stench that kind of came with that 10 to 12 hour shifts. Every week collected his paycheck at the end of it and, you know, prepared himself to start the routine over and over again for the next few years. But because of the way that he was, he actually was... Um, Somehow, because he showed up every day and he planted these seeds of like unwavering reliability, and uh, which is you know something that we'll talk about later. One of the most key attributes of successful CEOs: the reliability and learnability. So I'm 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 learning and I'm reliable at every juncture. He he began to have like this uh, pervasive reputational success. So he ended up becoming a story over and over again because of the unique things and the unique ways that he used to do things. And then he began to become noticed by very powerful mentors who began to see things in him and, and um, then started to position him at higher positions. And um, he was then, he was then through his behavior and character, uh, propelled to be chosen as the CEO of this organization, which is a Fortune 500 powerhouse in the waste services industry. Um, generating nine billion in um, revenue, and during his time as a leader, he out he got this organization to outperform um, between 2022, 2012, and twenty sixteen of sorts, and the market cap of his organization doubled from about one point fifteen billion to about. 22 billion um, during his time. And not only his performance was so incredible, but he was also received a Glassdoor Employees Choice Award and was named Glassdoor's 2017 highest rated CEO, or he was put in that particular list. Now I'm sure, you know, I, I do not like to say CEOs are gods and do not want to put him as like, you know, yeah, or, you know, someone to be worshipped and whose feet should be worshipped on. That's not the case, but it is an extremely unlikely CEO with no experience of being a CEO, with no um, education of being that. I'm not saying that this is a story uh, that, that would beat every company's, um, you know, uh, standard story of sorts. But this is obviously an organization where they were able to see potential from a very, very unique angle. And maybe having that person not have experience from a CEO lens, but from a service lens, help to propel the entire company, but also maintain the level of culture and engagement that the workforce needed as well. So uh, definitely everything that we spoke about earlier, this mm. guy has gone against the grain 
and succeeded. And I think we need to really reevaluate what um, success can look like. Right. Okay, it is time for another quick break. But when we come back, we get into selection biases and what we can do about it. You are listening to Psychology at Work on Visa Center. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. Be free-minded. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. We're back. You are listening to Psychology at Work on Resource Center. It is uh, part two of our five-part series on succession planning. Uh, and we are discussing selection biases, you know, when selecting your new CEO. Uh, now, Hetal, uh, for the break, uh, we kind of uh, discussed um, gender bias and similar like me bias and confirmation bias as well, you know, as part of the, the some of the myths that people have about who... Uh, a CEO should be or where a CEO should come from or what kind of skills CEO should have. Um, but maybe we can backtrack a little bit and talk about bias itself and, and why uh, biases should be addressed. Yeah, um, so biases are, is, is usually unconscious, it happens outside of our control and is automatically and triggered within sec- split seconds by our brain in order to make quick judgments and assessments of people and situations. And The reason why it's quick is because it's influenced by our own personal background, Mm. our own personal environment and our own personal experiences. So I love that you've talked about similar to me bias because this is what a major uh, bias when it comes to selection uh, would be. So major bias would be a similar to me. I pick somebody who's like me and I like people who are like me. I can see so much of semblance of you in me and therefore Uh, you would be successful because I would hope to think that I am successful and and therefore someone like me would be as well. Um, uh, Do we see this happening in the workplace? All the time. All Mm. the time because we do not have, um, uh, we do not uh, uh, eradicate identities from uh, resumes. So the moment the person's identity is there, it already triggers a lot of things like knowing a person's name, like for example, a Paul or John would be more likely than a, Zachary, for example, or um, Motu and Ali, right? So we do not eradicate these identities. And so we, 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 I, we are immediately able to identify or at least attach identification to a person because our resumes have that. And that's wrong. Uh, most resumes or when we talk about conversations about people, when we have conversations about candidates, they should be de-identified. But it's very difficult to do that. Uh, however, it, it, it can. Just because it's difficult doesn't mean it cannot. Now, the moment that happens... Uh, what happens is that we, we kind of, because the CEO or candidate of CEOs are pretty small, uh, so it is likely that we would already know who that person is and begin to have a lot of different types of biases. There are different types of biases, like, for example, similar to me, like we talked about earlier, or I think groupthink is a very, very challenging mm, one. Mm. Groupthink would be uh, the loudest voices typically would propel everybody to kind of come to a consensus about who might be the best candidate and then for the fear of speaking out people just go along with that as well um and again the loudest in the room doesn't mean you are the rightest in the room of sorts right Mm -hmm. so these biases can be um uh not can be have been one of the major triggers when we do uh, when we when we run surveys in organizations we ask them like why do you think you didn't get the promotion and most people say favoritism Mm -hmm. uh there's kind of favoritism over here 
So what can we do about it? Is that yeah? Is that there are there other other tips to kind of reduce the impact of bias because you know it is an unknown. We we don't realize we don't we're not mindful about these biases, right? And so, is there a way to reduce the impact of bias when making a selection? Sure. Yeah, I think when it comes to shortlisting, surely, um, you know, um, try to de-identify the person in one particular study. Uh, when they, they they had two study groups, one where they knew the names of the candidates. When they knew the names of the candidates, they selected the males more often and uh, more quickly. Mm-hmm. But when they didn't know, they actually selected at random either male or female, and we found that the candidates that were chosen were either male or female. So when you know, it is very likely that you're going to choose in that particular study. It is more likely that you're going to choose a male. It's very likely more likely that you're going to choose a tall person, a good-looking person, mm. uh, so on and so forth. So focus on minimal required qualifications, technical skill sets, maybe even beauty and stuff like that. Very difficult, uh, but yeah, try to do that. Uh, something that studies do would be to put a curtain around it, lah. So they put a curtain hmm. and they kind of autobot the uh, the speaker. So when this person speaks, you cannot tell whether it's male or female, and then you kind of go through. Um, so you put them under the same um, assessment, but you cannot see who they are. You do not know who you are evaluating, um, and and then yeah, and then you make a decision from there as well. Uh, also, when it comes to diversity and inclusion, depending on what your organization wants, make sure that you have the quota that is met for both parties. Like if it's, I don't know, if you're looking at you know gender gender diversity, then make sure you have both gender. If you're looking at age diversity, maybe you have all. If you're looking at um, national diversity or identity diversity, then have all of that. But make sure you have the numbers there, uh, which means that uh, you may ha- or may not have competent candidates, but you have all of the different diverse portfolios that you're looking at. Um, uh, shortlisting people, people who are shortlisting the candidates should not have access to demographic information. Also, uh, because of first impression biases, it is important to balance that out by uh, questioning your first impression and leaving that out of the way. So, for example, in a, once you do your evaluation, you ask each other, okay, what was your first impression? Okay, my first impression was blah, blah, blah. Mm. Now, okay, given that that was your first impression, let's now eradicate that whole part and what was the rest of your impression of that person? So that could be quite, quite, uh, quite right. important. And lastly, also, I think what was very valuable with a particular uh, group that we worked with was to give them a bias test. So all the board members that were selecting went through an unconscious bias test so that they could understand and be accountable to the fact that because once you complete a bias test, you will realize that everybody yeah. is biased, right? Mm. Uh, before that, you'll be like, Mola, where God, I'm not biased, right? So once they do the assessment, uh, then they will find out that, yes, I do have some elements of biasness and my biasness is around either gender or either around nationality or whatever, and then be accountable to, to that. So that's the shortlisting part, yeah. That would be some of the, the, I think what's really fun is the, what's most fun is the bias test that board members can and should do. Uh, because there's so much learning uh, that takes place in that. And they then begin to have the language to call each other out as well. So that's a pretty fun process at the start. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. So this was a jam-packed session. You know, we've covered the myths. We have covered the biases. Uh, so I guess next up on episode three, we will be discussing um, the secrets to selecting a great CEO. You want to give us a bit of a tease before next month's episode, Hetal? 
Oh, that they are no secret. I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, the biggest, the biggest one would be. I think the biggest secret uh, for CU selection is um, nothing except. Well, there's a lot, but um, really focusing on the pivot. Like, what is the transformation that you want make, want that CEO to make, uh, without killing the organization in the process or sabotaging what is great about the organization. So, pivot would be a very important part. And how do you craft up that sentence? Would be will be something that we'll talk about the next one. Uh, and so that will be happening uh, on part three of our five-part series coming up same time next month. Thank you, Hetel, for taking the time to uh, share these insights with us. Uh, for more information on the work you do, where can our listeners go? Maybe you can give them your website and your LinkedIn as well. Yeah, sure. Um, you can find me on Hetel Doshi at um, LinkedIn, which is H-E-T-A-L and D-O-S-H-I. And uh, I know that the, uh, the the podcast has been aired when I suddenly get like a flood of messages on LinkedIn. So thank you to those who uh, listen and, and obviously get in touch as well. Appreciate that. Great. I've been speaking with Hetel Doshi, organizational psychologist and CEO of OSYC. My name is Audrey Raj and this has been Psychology at Work on Resource Centre, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.